Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome to JAD Podcasts. I'm Ben Stoff, Department of Dermatology at Emory University. And today we're going to be tackling the challenging and sometimes frustrating topic of prior authorizations in dermatology. Specifically, we'll be looking at a recently published article in JAD entitled Examining the Prior Authorization Process, Patient Outcomes, and the Impact of a Pharmacy Intervention, a Single Center Review. To do that, we are joined today by Dr. Martina Porter, who is an instructor in dermatology at Harvard Medical School and Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. She is also co-director of the Dermatology Clinical Trials Unit at that institution and senior author on this paper. Dr. Porter, thank you for joining us today. Thanks. Excited to be here. Okay, great. Well, let's just start by giving our listeners a general sense of your interest in process improvement and maybe why you chose to look at prior authorization specifically. Yeah, so I, during my residency, actually did a two plus one where I ended up doing a clinical trials research fellowship as my last year of residency. And within that space, I spent a lot of time taking care of patients who had severe inflammatory skin disorders like psoriasis and a lot of hydradenitis superativa patients. And this was back in probably 2016, right after Humira had come out for HS. And so we were just doing tons and tons and tons of prior authorizations trying to get both off-label medications and Humira covered for these really sick patients. Um, so I would spend on average probably four hours a week calling insurance companies, submitting the prior authorizations on my own, in addition to the work that my attending was doing, and my mentor at the time was Alexa Kimball, and then also our staff, too, doing the front lines work. So it was just a burden that I felt like we needed to address in some sense and better qualify and understand where it was coming from. Right. Nothing like a firsthand experience with a problem in order to really tackle it from a process improvement perspective. And that's one of the first challenges in QI projects, really to establish a current problem. And so I know in the paper, the authors talk about some of the burdens associated with prior authorizations for patients and dermatologists. Can you maybe give us a sense of that, some of the background going into the research question? Yeah, so one of the problems that we had here is that we had medical assistants who were processing all of our prior authorizations, and our um, EHR, which is a homegrown system at the BI, has no way of determining when you send in a prescription if it was something that needed a prior authorization or not. So people were literally walking up to the medical assistant who would process these and telling them, do this prior authorization for a medication. And maybe 25% of the time it would need the prior authorization and 75% of the time it wouldn't, but we had no idea. And so they'd spend hours working on prior authorizations for medications that we didn't need prior authorization on and then no time spending it on medications that we did. And we'd have patients come back like months later who we assumed had been treated, but they revealed they never got any treatment in the interim. Wow. Wow. Right, so that's a big challenge. I mean, it's, it, to some degree, just determining which medications require prior authorization is a burden in, in and of itself. Yeah, it's actually one of the hardest parts, and it's still, as advanced as we become with the electronic health records, we still rely on faxes from outside pharmacies to let us know that a prior authorization is needed. 
and they haven't really automated this system well enough so that we can be prepared to do these without getting that feedback of sending in the prescription first. Yeah, it's huge. And I, I think you guys also do an interesting extrapolation of you know, the volume of prior authorizations and denials a dermatologist may encounter per year. Can you maybe just give us a sense of that estimate that you guys calculated? Yeah. So one of the things that we talked about in the discussion of the paper, it was trying to really estimate how many prior authorizations an average dermatologist would have to process in a year's time frame. And based on our data, we found that one in 12 of the prescriptions that we were submitting to pharmacies required a prior authorization, and one in five of those prior authorizations that we would submit back would be denied. So this came out to about one prior authorization for every 20 patient visits. And in dermatology, where they estimate we're seeing about 129 patients over a week, and they estimate, you know, you see 47 weeks of patients a year, you're generating about 300 PAs per year, and 60 of those will be PA denials that you try to pursue. And we estimate the average time is about 15 minutes to an hour to work on these prior authorizations. So you can see that's like a huge amount of volume that no single physician would even be able to take on themselves. It's really staggering. So, so 300 prior authorizations per year and 60 denials per year per dermatologist. That's yeah. really staggering. Yeah. And I mean, even at our institution, because this is a centralized process, one of the benefits was I got to see um, our specialty versus other specialties in our hospital and the number of prior authorizations that they were generating. And we are a relatively yeah. small department compared to um, GI and neurology here, but we were basically number one out of the whole wow. institution for the number of prior authorizations that we were generating. Well, I think all dermatologists had a sense of that intuitively, but it's nice to state it. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I think part of the thing that got me very interested in this project is when you look at all the other data that have been published on prior authorizations, it was all done by surveys where, you know, they, the AMA would send out surveys, um, some of the AAD task force would send out surveys, and they published these right. articles where providers or um, their surrogates, so they allowed like their medical assistants or whoever other um, support staff was doing their prior authorizations to answer the surveys, and they would anecdotally say, I feel like the prior authorization burden was rising, and I feel like these are medications that I see that need prior authorization, but I couldn't find yeah. any actual data, and that was part of what drove us to kind of publish all of the information and not just the benefit of the pharmacy intervention. Well, the field thanks you. Um, <laughs> on the topic of pharmacy-based interventions, this was kind of a novel term. Give us a sense of what these are and what some preliminary benefits have been associated with them. Yeah, so when we started this pharmacy intervention, we had two medical assistants because this project included both our academic site, which is in Boston, as well as all of our satellite sites, which are much more similar to community-based or private practice type settings. So all the data was combined. So it's not just very sick um, tertiary referrals. But we had one medical assistant in each office spending about 50% of their time doing all of these prior authorizations for us. So it was basically one full-time support staff. And then when we switched over to the pharmacy intervention, we our hospital actually went out and hired a bunch of pharmacy technicians. So people who actually only had a high school degree but had had experience working in both retail and specialty pharmacy to come and help do all of the prior authorizations. 
And so the way that it worked out is that the one person we had, she was off-site. She wasn't in any of our offices. Um, I spent a couple hours training her and showing her these are the medications that we prescribe. These are some things that are generic and interchangeable, like topical steroids and antifungals for the most part. And we talked about like different vehicles. And um, we actually went through a process where we sent out a survey to all the providers to ask if there were cer certain things that she could substitute and if there was something like a class one steroid ointment on formulary versus a different class one steroid ointment that may have been prescribed, could she just automatically substitute that and queue another refill instead of going through the process of doing a prior authorization? And because we were only a department of about 25, we allowed providers to kind of micromanage and decide if they wanted everything to go through them before she automatically substituted or not. But over time, everyone got very comfortable with her and she just substituted and people signed off regardless of what they initially wanted to do. But she actually decided with the hospital being involved that they would respond to every prior authorization from a pharmacy within 24 hours. And if they didn't get a response from the insurance company within three days, they would follow up with them every single day till they got a response. And then the pharmacy liaison, um, who's the technician, would go and call every patient and let them know what the outcome was. And if something got denied, she would give us a list of the reasoning of why it got denied and what the other alternatives would be. So it really streamlined the process for everyone, and we did it all just by email. I mean, in some ways it's really intuitive having somebody who's experienced in pharmacy be the kind of gatekeeper to prior authorization makes sense. And I think it's encouraging to know someone with actually relatively little experience could be trained so quickly to do the job. Not surprising that most people ultimately funneled through this person um, yeah. after some experience. Uh, but I think that's really encouraging to creative potential solution or at least way to streamline the PA process. So to focus on the study, maybe let's just start with the sort of fundamental research question that you guys were asking with it. Yeah, so our fundamental question was, does the volume of prior authorizations change with this pharmacy technician automatically substituting? Do the patient outcomes change if patients are able to get their medication sooner or get more approvals? Because I guess the biggest thing we were looking at is, does having a pharmacy technician increase our prior authorization approval rate? And then what are the reasons that the medications were denied? And then generally, we're also trying to categorize which type of medications required prior authorizations and which ones were getting denied in great rates. But one of the things that nobody had ever looked at to our knowledge before was trying to figure out if somebody's medication got denied, both through the prior authorization and the appeal, did it affect their outcome or did it affect their kind of confidence in the dermatologist and change their visit follow-up pattern? Like, did they come in sooner? Did they come in later? Did they not come back at all? I think it's a really critical aspect of the study that I have two big stars next to, which is patient outcomes. And this is a really novel, challenging thing to try to quantify, but so yeah. important. I mean, if it's one thing to just have a burden that's borne by yeah. physicians and office staff. It's, an, it's quite another. It's much more powerful in many ways to demonstrate an effect on patients in terms of health outcomes. So I think that was a really wonderful thing to look at, important thing to look at. I'm glad that that, that was part of the study. Let's talk briefly about the methodology of the study, maybe just a basic explanation of the methods, if you can. 
Yeah. So this study was actually done in 2017, if that gives any insight into how long it takes to get something <laughs> collected and analyzed <laughs> right. and then published. <laughs> so right. some of it may be a little outdated in some sense. But we essentially went through and looked at three months of data from May to uh, the end of July in 2017 before our pharmacist um, technicians started here. And then we looked about a month and a half after she started, so we gave her a little time to to figure out the ropes, and we looked at a three-month period post-intervention, and we essentially collected information on the medications, um, the names, the dosage, the indications, what date they were e-prescribed, and then we also tracked what day the PA was submitted, what day the decision date came back, um, what was the reason for denial, and what did the providers or the dermatologists do after the prior authorization was denied. And then we looked at the follow-up dermatology visit. So we actually went and did like a retrospective chart review and mm. went into each patient's chart to kind of quantify, like we were telling before, how did their disease severity change and in what time frame did they come back for their visit and what were the other medications that they were prescribed as an alternative so then we went and compared all this information before and after, and that's how we came up with all the results. And I thought just to mention here as part of the methodology, the authors utilized the appeal letter generator tool mm -hmm. that is furnished to members by the AAD. Could you just describe that to listeners? Yeah, so the AAD's appeal letter generator tool is actually a really great service. It's not for prior authorizations themselves. It is a generator that helps to make letters for prior authorization denials if you're trying to appeal for those medications. And anybody can use it that is an AAD member, and you can also go and delegate your support staff to be the people who can log in and generate those letters through the website. So for example, our pharmacy liaison in this project, the day that she started, I called up the AAD support line for the prior authorization letter generator and they made her an account. She didn't have to pay any fees or anything or become a member of the AD and her access to the website was limited only to the PA generator tool and then she was able to generate all the letters. And the letters themselves are really easy to use. There's many indications. They're not just for biologics. They're for topicals as well and therefore anything that has an FDA approved indication. And for example, I do hydronitis research in patient care. There was no letter for Humira for hydronitis or adalimumab for hydronitis, and I asked them to make it in a, a month later. They had it in there. So they're very responsive, wow. too. But all you do is it's kind of like a form you fill out, and it then generates a letter that's pre-formatted just like it would be if you were going to put it on letterhead. And it includes publications and citations to different studies that were done that explain why this medication is necessary. And for example, you would type in your patient's name, you could type in their date of birth, you could also type in what treatments they tried already, and they take that information that's just bullet pointed and put it in a very nice appealing paragraph that's easy to read. Yeah, I just want to emphasize, really helpful and powerful tool. Kudos to the AD for putting it together and, and to you guys for making it part of the, of the study. Let's move on to results. So there were a lot of interesting findings in this study. Maybe summarize for listeners what you found to be the most critical findings of the study. Yeah. 
So I think as we talk about the burden of prior authorizations, we touched on it a little bit, but before and after the intervention, we saw no difference in the number or types of prior authorizations that were being generated. So the pharmacy intervention had no impact on that which I think is interesting in and of itself, but one of the things that I think is quite concerning is that we had already put in place a lot of things like automatically substituting topical steroid prescriptions or topical antifungal prescriptions, or maybe one biologic like Embrel's not covered, but Humira is. So we had already gone through this whole process of trying to limit prior authorizations, and despite that, the number of prior authorizations or the percentage went up in the post-intervention period to 8.5%, before it was only 7.5%. It wasn't statistically significant, but it was trending there. So I think that is one of the big issues when it comes to burden. And then right. we looked again yeah, at all the different types of prescriptions that we saw, too. And you would imagine things like biologics and brand-name right. medications require a lot of prior authorizations. So Dr. Porter, what about the most frequent skin diseases associated with prior authorization and subsequent denials? Yeah, so the most common ones are the ones that we probably see the greatest percentage of patients anyways. They're like acne, psoriasis, various types of dermatitis, which I think is really driven by the number of prior authorizations for both topical steroids and topical calcineurin inhibitors, and then eczema or atopic dermatitis. Um, One of the things that I think is important to note is that there were very different rates of PA approval between different indications. So for example, acne had a very high rate of PA approval, over 70%, and even psoriasis which includes both topicals and biologics, two-thirds of those PAs were getting approved. But things Mm. like vitiligo, alopecia, hydradenitis, their denial rates were over 50%. So like vitiligo, Mm. two-thirds of those um, prescriptions were denied, alopecia 50%, hydradenitis almost 50% as well. And um, one of the points that we made in the discussion is there's obviously no FDA-approved medications for vitiligo right now or for alopecia areata, for example, or maybe there are a few topical steroids, but now they're doing these very large studies looking at topical JAK inhibitors, oral JAK inhibitors, medications that conceivably will have FDA approval, but when you look at the reasons for why the medications were denied, they weren't necessarily stating that they were off-label uses. They stated things like, yeah, they would say, this treatment is experimental. It's not medically necessary. It's only cosmetic. And I think that's Mm. one of the difficulties that we'll see going forward is that even if we can get things to be FDA approved, we still might get prior authorizations and denials for these medications because the insurance company has seen them to not be types of uh, indications that they want to cover, period. Right, because at first blush, it would have been intuitive to think that the FDA-approved medications would ultimately be approved by the carrier, but you're saying that actually that was not a necessarily the only reason for PA denials, ultimately. Yeah, and vitiligo, I'd say more than any other um, indication, really a lot of the responses where this medication is cosmetic, It is not a medical condition, and we even went through the process because a lot of them were just for, like, tacrolimus ointment, where we would appeal, and we even spent hours on the phone with a physical person, and we did this probably 10 times, 10 appeals, Mm -hmm. and it never got covered, I think, just once. (laughs) 
Wow, really staggering. I mean, I think, again, this speaks to just another way of measuring burden of disease, really. I mean, I think yeah. we all would acknowledge that these are, you know, underserved diseases and, and affect underserved populations. This is just another example of that. And I think really a powerful example of that as well. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit, Dr. Porter, about the impact of the pharmacy intervention on patient outcomes. You mentioned that earlier as one of the key metrics here. Talk to us about disease severity um, with regard to the pharmacy intervention and PA approvals and denials. Yeah. So one of the little graphs that we put in to our article, it kind of went, we tried to organize it uh, in a way that you could see this is how many people improved at their follow-up visit after they received a medication that uh, required a PA, for example. It's a little hard with all dermatologic conditions and just doing a chart review to assess whether or not disease has improved. Um, and that's why they have clinical trials with like these very specific outcome measures, but that doesn't right. really exist for clinical practice. So it was our poor medical student and fellow and me looking through all these charts and trying to figure out like how many lesions were listed here for acne and how many are listed here. But I mean, this is how they've always done <laughs> retrospective reviews. Right. So, but um, if you look at the table that we have or the figure, you can see that patients who got their medication or who had a PA that was initially um, approved, so they didn't have to go through a denial and, and assume got the medication quite quickly, they had over a 70% improvement, 70% of the patients improved. But if you keep following it down and you see the PA was denied and an appeal was submitted and, and that was approved, their improvement rates for patients is about the same, it's like 67%. But then right. it starts to drop down quite quickly for people who have PAs that are denied and then an alternative medication is prescribed. Only 59% of those patients improved. And then people who got no medication or got their PA denied, their improval rates were only down in like 47%. So now we're less than 50%. And one of the things that we didn't show in this paper because there weren't enough patients to really, I think, make it statistically significant is that we had a handful of patients who were prescribed a medication and literally spent over a year using alternative medications and continuously appealing the decision and they finally received the medication more than a year later, and within six months, their condition, which hadn't been controlled at all, it was either unchanged or worsened over that entire year time frame, just wow. got better. Um, hmm. So I think, I mean, as a physician, you want to believe that what you're prescribing is what you really think is best for the patient, and we have this kind of hurdle where we have insurance companies for whatever reason telling us that we can't give it to them and we can really see that the patients are suffering when they're not getting the correct medication or the one that we deem to be the best for them from the beginning. And for some of these right. patients, we are right, but it takes many hours of appeals and a lot of suffering both on the patient's end and even our end trying to help them get this medication before they can finally get it and get better. Well, I think we all applaud you for the elbow grease you use to get these outcome data because they're extremely valuable. And again, just to emphasize, the poor outcomes seem to be associated with PA denials, really. So the PA yeah. denials in which an alternative medication was attempted to be utilized or which no medication was utilized at all was associated with worse outcomes. This is such yeah. valuable data. I think really important to, to demonstrate that there's a real patient burden here. Another thing that I thought was interesting as part of your 
you know, conclusion, analysis, et cetera, was sort of looking at the financial implications of a position like this, this pharmacy level intervention. I mean, I, I think all the listeners can imagine, wouldn't it be great to have, you know, a farm tech in the office, but is this really possible? Talk a bit about how this might make sense for a practice financially. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that we didn't account for in this article, because we looked just at medical assistant was processing prior authorizations or some support staff member, and now pharmacy technician is processing prior authorizations. But I actually did some surveys of providers as well, so physicians and then some mid-level providers as well that we had employed here at the time to see how many hours per week they were spending on the prior authorizations. And now on average, like our providers spend less than one hour a week doing prior authorizations and appeals since we've implemented this pharmacy technician intervention, whereas before they were spending over three or four hours per week trying to help either do the peer-to-peer phone calls or provide information that the medical assistants couldn't find and just have to sign off on all of these. So I think if you just look at the support staff costs, we exchanged one full-time equivalent medical assistant for one full-time equivalent pharmacy technician. But we saved most of our time, I think, and money in the sense that the providers were the ones who got a lot of relief, and that just hasn't been quantified to the same extent. Yeah, but I think it's an important point to recognize. I mean, there is much of the cost is off the cost of this position may be yeah. offset by freeing up work for others. And you can also imagine, given the fact that this person, this farm tech, was off-site, you can imagine some consolidation may take place and allow for perhaps multiple practice locations to utilize the same yeah. person. I think there's a lot of potential there to offset cost. It's a really yeah. important and, point. Yeah, and like I said, we had one pharmacy technician that supported all 25 of our providers at four different sites, and she was off-site from all of those sites. So you don't really need the person to be there physically. And I guess if you're looking at a private practice model, if you don't have that many physicians, you could conceivably share some sort of pharmacy technician to help with this. Right, absolutely. I think that's a key sort of potential use of a person like this shared among multiple practices, no question. Of course, any study has some limitations, and I know the authors acknowledge that in the paper. Give our listeners a sense of what some of the limitations were of the study. Yeah. Some of the limitations are obviously that we are a single center in an academic center in Boston. So if you look at Massachusetts healthcare in general, we have most of our patients are insured, and the insurance here is probably better than the majority of states in the country. And then the other limitations are that this is retrospective, so we didn't take into account whether or not patients were compliant with their medication use. So there's no way for us to really determine if they were using the medications or not, and that's why they got better or did not get better. And then the other thing that we didn't look at is the payers because our EHR is limited. It can only keep one insurance at the time. So we couldn't tell what insurance they had at the time that their prior authorizations and denials were um, being processed. Right. So always questions of generalizability that would come up at a single center study and retrospective study design. But I think still some potential for broad application to multiple centers in multiple states. Yeah, definitely. Well, great. Dr. Porter, maybe just before we end, some really key take-home points for the listeners. What would they be? I think the key take-home points that 
we're trying to show with this paper is that there really is a significant burden of prior authorizations and that a pharmacy technician is a way to potentially alleviate some of this burden for dermatologists and other providers. And then when we look specifically at the prior authorizations themselves, we really need to pay attention to kind of the regulatory aspects that are associated with prior authorizations because it's clear from our study that patients who are denied medications do not have as good patient outcomes as those that receive their medications. And if we can do anything to increase transparency where we know in advance which medications require prior authorizations, then there would be ways for us to kind of as a specialty help to improve this process and alleviate both the burden on ourselves and on the patients. Right, and I think that's just, a, again, a critical point to emphasize. It's not just a time burden. It's not just a financial burden. It's a health burden to have to deal with the prior authorization process as it stands now. So kudos to you for coming up with a wonderful intervention for, that I think has potential application for other dermatologists and also really quantifying, maybe for the first time in dermatology, the effect of the prior authorization process on patient outcomes. So with that, I'd like to thank Dr. Porter for her time and her wonderful paper, and also thanks to our listening audience for tuning into another edition of JAD Podcasts.